Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. The interview for this podcast was conducted on the 20th of February 2016. This podcast series is a product of the Committee on International Environmental Law of the American Branch of the International Law Association and is co-sponsored by the University of South Dakota School of Law. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I'm an associate professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. I research and write on issues of national and international environmental law and how these issues intersect with business aspects. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of interviewing Mr. Michael Schneider about his views on nuclear power in France and beyond. I apologize for my somewhat hoarse voice today. Michael Schneider is an independent international analyst and consultant on energy and nuclear policy based in Paris, France. He is the convening lead author and publisher of the annual World Nuclear Industry Status Report. Energy visionary Amory Lovins of the Rocky Mountain Institute has called this report a vital public service. Michael initiated the Seoul International Energy Advisory Council, appointed by the Mayor of Seoul, and serves as its coordinator. This experience led to the founding of the International Energy Advisory Council, incorporated in the U.S., which Michael represents as a spokesperson. Michael has advised the Belgian, French, and German governments, as well as international and academic institutions, NGOs, think tanks, and media. So, Michael, welcome to the program, and thank you for uh, spending time to talk to us today. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So it's now widely recognized that to avoid catastrophic consequences of climate change, the world has to move away from fossil fuel energy sources. Um, in that connection, nuclear power has resurfaced in discussions as a potentially viable energy source. Uh, but France, however, has recently chosen to reduce the share of nuclear energy in its electricity mix from 50 uh, to 50% rather from 75%. Why is that, given the fact that France for such a long time boasted its ability to produce safe, reliable nuclear power for civilian uses? Well, I think there are several reasons. Uh, it's not just a straightforward one reason argument. First of all, um, France has moved farther ahead than any other country in its share of nuclear power in, in the electricity mix with uh, uh, reaching levels of uh, over three quarters. Uh, now, having a system where you have three quarters of the total electricity generated by nuclear power is not a flexible system. Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, to have a system like that because you never need the entire amount of capacity that you have available uh, in a sort of in a, in a way which is appropriate to generate it uh, with nuclear power. Let me explain what that means. Uh, you have a very low consumption levels in uh, most of the European countries in the summer and high consumption levels in the winter. In the US it's the other way around because of uh, air conditioning and, uh, and other factors. Um, it means for a country like France, and we, we'll come back to that uh, uh, in a while, uh, that in the summer you can have levels uh, that are approximately half of the installed capacity in nuclear power, half, not more. And in the highest levels, you can reach uh, levels that are, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70% more 
then is installed in nuclear power. So you see that th this level of equipment doesn't really, is not really appropriate to cover all needs at all times of all, you know, all types of needs at all times. So that was a, a first reason to cut the, the, the level, a technical reasons. The second reason is that um, obviously there's, there's some engagements in the, on the international level to cut consumption, uh, to increase efficiency, to reduce intensity of energy use, and to boost um, uh, the, the use of uh, renewable energies. And finally, um, you know, the French have not been uh, completely... Uh, how would I say, um, you know, they have lived very intensely the Fukushima crisis as well. So the reactions you had from a population's point of view uh, in a country like Germany are pretty close to, to what happened in France. Not so different at all. So you, you got levels of three quarters of, uh, uh, you know, in surveys, public opinion surveys of people that were in favor of phasing out nuclear power in France. Very similar levels to Germany. Uh, so the, it's a combination of, of issues that, that put this drive, which is historic, of course, because it's the first time in 50 years that a government comes in and says we've got to reduce the, the share of nuclear power and not, and not increase or maintain the, the use. Great. Um, in one of your writings about this topic, uh, you mentioned the fact that under the 2006 French Nuclear Transparency uh, and Safety Act, citizens have now gotten broader part, uh, public participation rights and rights to access to information in general than ever before. So you just mentioned right now the uh, general public's uh, opinion about this. So did that act in combination with uh, perhaps broader insight inform and influence this decision to reduce the mix, do you think? Uh, yes and no. I, I think it's perfectly clear that the public opinion played a role in forming a policy uh, orientation, but it's definitely not uh, public participation in the process of, uh, let's say, nuclear uh, legislation, uh, decision-making or so, that was instrumental for that. Uh, even though I mean, it has to be made very clear that uh, the, the Hollande government came in with the programmatic orientation to reduce the share of nuclear power to, to uh, about half from three quarters. But it's now uh, law. So it's gone a, you know, a long way. And in that process, there was quite some, some public participation in terms of uh, roles of NGOs that, that didn't exist the same way uh, as before. But that, wasn't, that didn't trigger, what I'm trying to say is that didn't trigger the policy orientation. So it still is uh, basically a top-down decision where the government still um, has the primary say in the decision-making process, you would say? Well, I would say, you know, France is a, it's, it's a pretty strange country when it comes to decision-making in these areas. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I wouldn't call it a typical democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very much elite technocrats that, mm -hmm. that um, formulate uh, policy orientation uh, and, uh, you know, pretty much orient policy in those areas. And they, you know, 
a small group of elite technocrats uh, is instrumental in you know preparing legislation in preparing policy in putting it into um, into actually implementing it and on top of it in controlling it which is very convenient if you have the same group of people that mm -hmm. you know in, invents something mm -hmm. that puts it into place and controls it that's perfect <laughs> it's by the way one of the reasons why why was their nuclear po the nuclear policy in France has been so incredibly constant through you know i think somebody count i i counted at some point like a couple of years a few years back nine prime ministers you know that basically made the same policy right uh, so how could you explain that if it if it's not by the fact that the administration is incredibly influential into government policy making Right, right. Good point. And at the same time, France uh, has, though, I think, been seen by at least parts of the world as having sort of a leadership position in the field. And I'm sure the government didn't mind uh, being at the forefront of that development. But recently, though, France has had numerous problems maintaining its position as the world's leader in what was broadly touted as safe and cost-effective nuclear power production. Can you elaborate on what you think uh, is going wrong in that respect? And um, are these signs that France is not really the leader that the world might have thought it to be? Well, first of all, it's not only France. I mean, you know, to say that the French nuclear uh, industry is in crisis and everybody else as well would be sort of <laughs> slightly, right. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, you know, misleading. The, the nuclear industry has been in crisis for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first point to clarify. Uh, you know, the, 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 the historical peak of basically any indicator you can take Uh, whether it's, you know, the number of units operating, which uh, reached its peak in 2002, uh, the, the nuclear electricity generated by uh, reactors uh, reached a peak in 2006. Uh, you will realize this was all way before Fukushima happened. But the most interesting uh, uh, criteria or parameter is actually the share of nuclear power in the global electricity mix, which reached its peak, um, you know, 20 years ago in the middle of the 1990s. And since then, it's been shrinking. Uh, so we, we are facing basically an industry that is globally uh, in crisis and has been in crisis and as in a decline Uh, sort of uh, uh, scope, uh, sc um, um, how do you say, uh, slope uh, for, for quite mm -hmm. some time. Mm -hmm. Now, coming to France, France indeed uh, seemed to sort of be kind of um, less affected than, than other countries. Uh, and th th there are various reasons for this. One, one is that if you have a country like uh, Germany that is very much federal, uh, very much decentralized in the policy making. Few people know that the actual safety authorities, the nuclear safety authorities are, are um, hosted by the environment ministries in the lenders, so in the regions. Mm -hmm. uh, of course there is a federal authority, but um, the actual implementation is on the lender level. Uh, you know, obviously everything is totally centralized in, in, in France. So changes that were made and things that happened, happened over time in a country like Germany, not at all in, a, in, a, in an abrupt manner as it's often read uh, wrongly. 
it's a it's a it was a long process. Hmm. Such a process didn't take place in in France. Hmm. Uh, and I think one of the problems is this sort of shielded technocrat decision making, mm-hmm. which was impossible to be influenced. It, it was kind of basically, you know, uh, outside of reality, t- making uh, t- taking decisions. And we see now the result is uh, much more dramatic than in other countries. You know, we just, you know, the Arriva, which is a, you know, it, it, they actually promote themselves as a global leader in, in, in nuclear power still, if you look at their website. But in fact, it's a company that, is, that has run bankrupt where, you know, it's just staggering. The government decided to save the company, inject 5 billion euros. I, I think it's probably one, one of the largest savings operations in, in French history. And you wouldn't believe it, but... Uh, while share prices went up like 30% within a day, uh, as you know, by the end of uh, last week, like a couple of weeks later, they were basically back to where they were before. In other words, uh, this company has lost about 95% of its share value of what it had eight years ago. Wow. Eight, 95%. That's amazing. That's huge, and if you look at the the, and that's more problematic even uh, than Arriva, which of course has been has been rated junk mm-hmm. uh, a long time ago by the credit rating agencies. Right, you know, a public company. Uh, but the 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 larger problem is is Electricité de France uh, (EDF), which is the largest operator of nuclear power plants in the world, uh, that lost about eighty eight percent of its share value. And is in huge trouble with a 37.4 billion um, uh, debt load, and you know shrinking client base, shrinking uh, consumption, uh, with ferocious competitors and increasing operational costs. So all this together leads to a dramatic. I, I can only use the term dramatic situation in this sector in in France. And at the same time, uh, some other countries, China, for instance, have appeared on the stage and uh, seem very willing to step in where France may be having some troubles. So China, for instance, has cur- currently has the largest domestic nuclear power construction program in the world and announced its willingness to invest in Arriva that you just mentioned, the financially troubled uh, nuclear reactor manufacturer. Also, South Korea has won a huge bid to build some nuclear reactors in Abu Dhabi some uh, some years ago worth $20 billion. But these countries, though, don't have nearly as much experience in the industry as France does, after all. Um, does this trouble you've seen from a nuclear safety point of view, both as regards potential misuses, but also from an environmental point of view? I mean, there is... Let, let's take it step by step. Uh, the first thing is that... Uh, China is not one of the large builders. It's the only large builder. Mm -hmm. China is the exception. Uh, China has uh, 24 reactors under construction and 31 in operation. Uh, So it it brings it basically both, you know, if you put both together, it's 55 and uh, uh, more have been licensed uh, in in 2015. So the program is basically as large as uh, the French one now. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, will you know will be larger um, uh, pretty pretty quickly. However, however, don't forget that China is spending 
a lot more money into renewables than they spend into nuclear power. Right. China builds everything. <laughs> you know, people forget that. It's not it's true. It's not that China is just, you know, focusing, is like incredibly focusing on nuclear power. The nuclear power program is actually quite small compared to the size of China, compared to the Chinese economy, compared to the, 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 the kind of export-oriented uh, um, uh, economy, because they are not yet really exporting nuclear power. That's what they try to get into, but they try to get into anything. And uh, most amazingly, um, the, the program was frozen, the nuclear program, new build program was frozen for four years. In other words, for four years after Fukushima, the Chinese government didn't authorize a single new build, not one. Of course, reactors have been continued to be built, reactors have started up, but they were obviously in the pipeline for a long time before that. So the in, in, the, in, the, in the entire world, there were two countries after Fukushima that took uh, abrupt measures after Fukushima. One was Germany, the other one was China. But nobody looked at China. Hmm. So keep in mind that China now, for example, generates more power from wind alone than they generate from nuclear power. Interesting. And, the, and this is like that f since 2012 or 13. So... And it's, it's the, the acceleration in the renewable sector has been, you know, absolutely stunning since 2011. And in 2010, so before uh, 3.11 happened, uh, China already spent about five times more on renewables than on nuclear. So it should be put into, into relative terms. Now, you raised a very, very important point. That is, what does that mean? that speed for environmental and, and safety issues. And I can tell you, I was in China in, in this last December, and this is, there, is a, there is a huge debate in China, internally, in the nuclear industry, about the question whether they knew, should move reactor construction inland or not, or whether the, you know, as, as for now, the, the reactor projects are basically only on the coast. And the key, the key reason is that they fear uh, major accidents. And they say, well, if we look at Fukushima, I mean, uh, most of the radioactivity actually has, has gone out into the ocean, which is not good, but it's definitely better than if it had gone on land. A major accident inland in China could have absolutely traumatizing and, you know, unbelievable uh, um, uh, consequences on water resources and, and agricultural land in the country. So there is a big, a big question there. And one of the key issues, why questioning safety, is this incredible speed of building. Uh, you know, in other countries like the US or France or, or the UK or Sweden or whatever, any, any traditional nuclear country has huge problems in in bridging the uh, generational gap. In, uh, the, the largest builder, uh, the largest uh, operator of nuclear power, EDF, has to replace about half of its nuclear staff within six years. Can you imagine that? Half of the staff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. That is huge. I mean, uh, how, do you, how do you train these people? I mean, if, uh, and it's... it's, it's you know, a similar situation for China, not because they people retire, but, but because they have to build up 
so incredible numbers of uh, reactor specialists. And they, they, you know, China generates about a million engineers per year. You know, so they, 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 they have graduates, but, uh, you know, a nuclear engineering graduate is not a nuclear operator. Right. So that is a real, real big issue in China, and it's it's being raised. It's not at all, uh, you know, just an issue that's that is is wiped under the carpet. Right. Wow. Thanks for bringing up that point. That um, sounds challenging and and uh, interesting. Both. Uh, so speaking of environmental issues uh, that you started talking about a little bit, uh, some years ago you wrote a report called "Nuclear Power in France Beyond the Myth." Uh, that was commissioned by the Greens and the European Free Alliance in the European Parliament. In that report, you addressed some myths about nuclear power uh, in France, and I'd like to hear your current opinion on some of these issues. So, for instance, one of the myths you mention is that uh, France is positioned well to contribute much less to climate change because of its use of, in a, uh, of nuclear power. Why do you consider that to be a myth? There's several reasons for that. I mean, people tend to look only on the share of nuclear power in electricity production, which indeed is very high. It's, uh, you know, it used, uh, it's, it was over 75% over the f- past few years. Huge. But people forget that if we talk about climate change, we don't talk about, uh, you know, electricity only. We talk about energy as the, the, the basic, uh, you know, the key emitter for, uh, for um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Now, if you look at the final energy consumption, why, wh- what does that mean, final energy? We distinguish between a primary energy, commercial primary energy, and final energy, which means if you have... Uh, uh, what you usually have in the in the statistics is by definition something you measure so it's it's um, commercial primary energy that's everything that that uh, goes into uh, uh, that is burnt or that goes into the the beginning of the tube of the process so uh, in in the course of you know, transformation, let's say you have a coal-fire power plant or a nuclear power plant or a gas-fire power plant, most of the energy that is contained in the fuel is actually released into the environment in the form of heat. I mean, if you have a cooling tower, what you see there is steam that is going out, it's heat. And a cooling tower releases about two-thirds of the heat that is is in the fuel. So two-thirds are actually lost. Uh, Further, depending on the country, uh, uh, let's say 8 to uh, 15% or more is lost in in transportation and distribution of electricity. So what you get at the end, that is the final energy that is actually available for use to the consumer. And that's the key, right? I mean, that's the uh, useful energy that is is there for the consumer. If we look at that figure, uh, for France, uh, roughly 70% of the final energy is still uh, um, provided by fossil fuels. Over 40% is still oil. Mm-hmm. And about over 20% is gas. Uh, gas is increasing, oil is decreasing, and coal is decreasing. Coal is still 4%. Mm-hmm. So the total together is a roughly is just under 70%. 70% is fossil fuels in nuclear France. People forget that. Yeah, they do. And it's, uh, you know, so electricity within final energy is something like 25%. 
And of that, three quarters are three quarters are nuclear. So you have something like 18, I, I have the figures in front of me for 2013, so it's 18.2% nuclear of, uh, you know, of those 25%. Uh, so the, the, the overall share of nuclear, of final energy, is 18%. You know, we're very far from figures of over half. Right. Now, if we come to renewables, you know, it's France always boasts also we're 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 the greatest renewable energy generators in in Europe when it comes to to uh, renewable electricity. However, it's basically all hydro and it's large dams. So it's you know in 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 most countries that's not even counted as renewable energy anymore. <laughs> if you just look at wind and solar, which are the key uh, major uh, uh, electricity generating sources the share the share for wind is below 1% and for solar is be one, uh, below 0.5% of final energy so there, there is a you know it, uh, France is very well back and you know uh, emissions of uh, you know carbon emissions have gone down Yes, and and the fact that there is uh, you know nuclear power in the electricity mix is uh, is absolutely has been contributing to that, but it hasn't. The, the idea that this brings uh, makes France independent of oil imports, for example, is factually totally wrong. The per capita uh, oil consumption in France is higher than in the EU on average. It's higher than Italy that phased out nuclear power a long time ago. So, uh, so, so it is, and it's, it's about approximately the same as in a country like Germany. The, the problem is that, that uh, the, the oil is not being used in electricity. It's used in transport, transportation, and in other areas. So that is, we have to look at energy and not only elect electricity. But there's one more point which I think I would like to raise, which people forget. It has to do with so-called gray emissions. You know, when we, we talk about climate change, if uh, um, a country like Germany, for example, is one of the largest, I haven't seen the figures for 2015 yet, but you know that, that Germany had bypassed China again as the largest net exporter in the world, with the largest trade surplus in the world. Um, that means a huge amount of goods are exported to other countries uh, that actually are fabricated in the country. So the greenhouse gas emissions that, are, that go along with the exported goods are counted on, on the countryside, on the, on the, on the uh, you know, in this case, on, on Germany's side. Where the goods are produced, yeah. Uh, where the goods are produced. And which is obviously the case for countries like China and, and every country that should be done and it should be calculated like that. Now, the point is that, of course, you can, this is not only in terms of value, it, one has to look at sector by sector, what kind of products you import and what do you export. So the, the balance, the carbon balance in trade for a country like, like uh, Germany is at, at least balanced. So they would, you know, they would import as much carbon as, as they export carbon. For France, it's very different. France has a huge, a gigantic trade deficit. Isn't that incredible? You know, France saying we have such a low 
electricity price, which, by the way, is not true anymore, but we can come back to that. Mm -hmm. But it's, it, it should be incredibly competitive on the international markets with, with you know, high levels of nuclear because they claim it's so cheap. Right. Reality is different. Uh, France has a gigantic uh, uh, trade deficit, which you can always follow the, the, the price of oil because uh, France is, remains incredibly dependent on oil and fossil fuels in general and has, import, has to import everything. So it depends. The trade deficit basically depends on is an energy bill for France. So uh, when we look at the, the carbon uh, emissions that are in trade uh, and you, you, you have to actually increase at least by 50% the per capita emissions of France. 50% increase. If you do that, the, the, the staggering fact is that you get actually pretty close to the per capita emissions of a country like Germany, which is a coal country. And at the same time, you're saying nuclear power hasn't really had any positive effect on uh, on the trade balance or or the price for industrial use. What about uh, the myth that you also mentioned in your report that France has very inexpensive electricity? So you're saying that's not true? Well, you know, the what do you what do you count as price? That is the big question. Do you count taxes in there? Do you don't ca ta count taxes in there? Do you know calculate feed-in tariffs or other kinds of collectivized subsidies? Very complicated. If you take end-consumer residential tariffs, France is extremely well-placed. Uh, so at the lower end of the prices in the European Union. Not the lowest, but in, on the lower end. Uh, on industrial, uh, theoretically, it's, it's very similar. The problem is, The industry doesn't buy necessarily that way. They buy on the power exchange. They buy on the market. And the problem France has is that the bulk price is so low that it doesn't even cover the operating costs of nuclear power. This sounds incredible, but that's exactly what happens. And the, uh, all the more, if you look beyond the border, uh, so, if, if just to, to fix the orders of magnitude, the, the, the bulk price in France was something like 38 euros uh, per megawatt hour in 2015. In, um, in uh, Germany, it was, I don't have the figure in mind, but it was something like, let's say, 33 or 30, 34. The, the problem is that in, in the end, many consumers... Uh, industrial, uh, large consumers, they buy on the power exchange. They don't buy direct. So they, they, they supply, uh, they get their supply on uh, according to the price level. This, this is the reason why Germany is actually, until today, a net exporter, power exporter to France. And then at the same time, you also have said uh, that France actually has created uses for nuclear energy that didn't originally exist uh, and that you consider to be expedient, such as, uh, for instance, exporting electricity. So you're mentioning uh, Germany exporting to France. Are they then sort of ex uh, exporting back and forth to each other or, or can you Absolutely. elaborate on that? Absolutely. But the, the, in, in, in the case of Germany, it's the only case where the net, uh, the net uh, export is on the German side, so that, that France imports more. France exports 
about uh, um, 60 terawatt hours, so 60 billion kilowatt hours net mm -hmm. to the other countries, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, is a net importer from Germany. Okay. The interesting thing is that Germany, that, that you know, people said when the, the nuclear phase-out decision was made in 2011, oh, it's easy for Germany, they just will import French nuclear power. And what we see is exactly the opposite, is that, uh, you know, it's, it's just under 10 terawatt hours. That's not marginal. That's the net import of France, of German power. Can, and mm -hmm. some of it is renewable and some of it is coal. I see. And the, the, that's the big problem we have with the carbon market, is that the carbon market doesn't really orient the most intelligent and climate-friendly energy generation. So what electricity operators have done in Germany, they're all international, of course. So you take a company like RWE or E.ON, one of the big ones in Germany, they own gas-fired power plants in in uh, in the Netherlands, let's say, uh, they shut them down because the electricity they generate by uh, renewables or coal in Germany is cheaper than what they can do in the Netherlands. So they export to themselves, basically, to the Netherlands. And why is that? The coal price is, you know, went through the, uh, you know, through the lowest historical levels because because of the the you know shale gas revolution in the US. All these are global market uh, effects, but it has nothing to do with the, with the nuclear phase-out in Germany. That's the interesting part about it. Right. Um, that's interesting. Oh, let me say, excuse okay. me, because I didn't really answer the question on price. The, 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 the prices increase in France for various reasons. The regulator has done a study in 2013 which basically identified that all parameters contributing to the price building increase so whether it's salaries or taxes or, or um, uh, raw materials or, uh, you know, whatever it is, it so it increases on all levels. But there are specifics about nuclear. One is uh, the operator EDF has for about 10 years underinvested in upgrading its, its uh, fleet. That was a terrible thing to do because they basically cashed in for 10 years and underinvested. So they have to catch up investment. The second thing is that, you know, we're looking at uh, power plants of an average age of 30 years. I mean, Jesus, do you remember what car you, what the car looked mm -hmm. like you rode uh, that you were riding, uh, you know, 30 years ago? I didn't have one. I was living in Denmark. But yeah, I, you know, things have changed a lot for the better, that's for sure. We're talking about a different technical age. Yes. Literally a different technical age. So, uh, of course, you have to spend more money on an old car than on a new one. So aging is a key issue. And the, the, finally, um, the post-Fukushima measures that have been claimed by the nuclear safety authorities are very stringent in the French case. So altogether, it makes that, you know, we're in a situation where production costs increase phenomenally and the tariffs are not increasing enough in in a way that in 2012 the regulator calculated that that EDF lost about a billion and a half euros because the tariffs didn't cover the costs that is illegal actually and the regulator has asked for increased tariffs and which they still have to catch up
So what we're expecting is a price increase, like a tariff increase, of about at least 30%. People say up to 50%, uh, up to, uh, to 2017, 2018. If that happens, and this just to cover the costs, then the price level will be higher than the smallest electricity supplier in France, which is a cooperative and uh, distributes certified 100% renewable electricity. Isn't that staggering? That's amazing, yeah. And so in that vein, seeing uh, these prices from the consumer's point of view, you've mentioned the fact or the statement that there's um, a lot of energy poverty in France. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Is that connected to these pricing issues or, or what do you mean by that? Well, what happened, uh, um, you asked earlier, the, 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 there were some increases in consumption that were purely... Uh, made, homemade, and they were basically of two levels. One was uh, uh, long-term electricity export agreements, so where they basically sold for production costs electricity, um, considering you know investment as sunk costs. So it was unbeatably cheap for uh, large-scale clients all over Europe. Um, uh, now we have you know, to, to clarify the order of magnitude, there is between 10 and 12 reactors just operating for exporting electricity. That's substantial. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the other area was that uh, there was a, an active and massive push for electric space heating uh, in, in, uh, in the residential and commercial areas. Now, res you know, electric space heating is about the dumbest thing you can do. Because, as I explained earlier, you basically use three quarters of the energy on the route, uh, and then you reheat water or you reheat air. So, rather than do it as where you need, where you need the heat, you know, if you run a gas central gas heating system, uh, you reach today uh, levels that are extremely high. So the losses are maybe five percent, or, or uh, you know, in any case, less than ten percent. We're talking, you know, 70 or, or 75 percent losses in the electricity case. So it's a very dumb thing to do uh, from, a, from a, an environmental protection level, but also from a, from a purely economic level. But it also led to the fact that, of course, you kind of distort the entire consumption system. Very low levels in the summer. Uh, and very high uh, consumption levels in the winter. To illustrate that, by you can use a term that we call thermal sensitivity. It means if you if the thermometer drops by one degree, by one degree, and it, sometimes it drops by twenty degrees in two days, by one degree you need two thousand six hundred megawatts. So so that's the equivalent of two nuclear power plants more. So can you imagine if you are electrically heated in the winter, mm -hmm. uh, which is the most expensive thing to do anyway, mm -hmm. and your housing is not well insulated, hmm. and who has homes that are less insulated than others? It's essentially people that live in housing that is privately, collective housing that is privately owned. Because the investor has an interest in lowering investment level, so electric space heating is very cheap to install and very expensive to use. So the poorest people get actually the cheapest uh, heating system, 
which is the most expensive to use. So they pass on the, the costs in a way of, of that problem to the to the end consumer, to put it that way. And so that's ironic given the fact that I think it was originally promised in the very early stages of uh, civilian nuclear energy use that the prices would be so low for the consumers that uh, it wouldn't even pay to bill for them and so forth. So you're saying that that, uh, that too is actually a myth. Oh, too cheap to meter was a was an was a nice idea, but it it's been it's been proven wrong for decades. Right. Uh, it that was a sentence from the 1950s, and it's proven wrong for back decades. But what I think is so absolutely scandalous that one of the richest countries in the world has now officially five million households. That's about a fifth. One in five households officially in fuel poverty. And fuel poverty is, has been defined in the UK for the first time uh, as you know, spending more than 10% of the household income on energy. And the, the highest energy, there are some dis, you know, differences from country to country, whether you put transport in there or not, whether you only count heating in there or whether you count uh, you know, heating and electricity. But it's very clear that the, a very large share of uh, these uh, you know, fuel-poor households are electricity heated. That's amazing. And so, what is that uh, like in compared uh, in comparison with other European nations? Do you know is France one of those that has the highest rates of fuel poverty, or or what does that look like? No, uh, but we we know very little about it yet. Uh, the thing is that the only country that has been studying fuel poverty for a long time is the UK, uh, and uh, the, the UK is probably also the worst country for fuel poverty. But it's very difficult to compare because you don't have unified statistics. You know, countries like Germany only just start in looking at, at fuel poverty from a national statistics point of view. So it's very difficult to, to, to compare. But probably, likely, uh, the UK is the worst case, in, in, at least in Western Europe. Of course, we don't know anything. What is fuel poverty in Romania like? Don't ask me. I have no idea. But I've seen 80-year-old women, you know, bagging in the street in the winter at below zero levels in, uh, in Romania, you know. Right, right. Um, but that's staggering that, uh, that you mentioned that for uh, uh, presumably more well-to-do countries such as um, England, the United Kingdom and, uh, and France. So, um, so Exactly. And I, th I think we have, we have a collective responsibility for energy services and I define energy services as the basic services which means cooked food, it's lighting, it's heating and cooling, it's mobility, it's communication and it's motor force. Um, you know, you, you, you can take your entire life and it, it, it all belongs somewhere, everything that has to do with energy belongs somewhere into one of these categories. And, uh, you know, I think there is a collective political responsibility to keep people warm. Uh, you know, in rich countries, there is no reason that anybody should be cold in winter. Right. You know, and there's, you know, there, there is this incredible quote by the National Housing Agency that, that already a few years back, when things were still better, actually, that said three million French are cold in winter. That's, That's amazing. 
that's a that's a quote by the National Housing Agency. Right. Uh, you know, but what are they uh, going to do about this, so to speak? So is there any talk in France as there is here in this country, in the United States, about retrofitting buildings now, insulating them, uh, things like that, you know, technological advances? But, you know, and who's going to pay for that? Is that then going to be the private consumers or how would that come about? Very good question. I mean, one of the things that happened that are that are really positive is that in 2012, the um, uh, the thermal regulation for new built homes uh, changed. Uh, so it it and uh, you know the the, the the sort of the standard for per square meter maximum uh, energy consumption. Uh, was modified and dramatically reduced, which, by the way, because it's calculated on the primary energy side, it was uh, it basically kicks out electricity from from uh, unless it's hyper efficient homes and you use, for example, heat pumps. But it 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 uh, you know like direct uh, resistance heating is basically kicked out uh, of most of the new build market, where it held you know over th- two thirds. Uh, um, in the years before, which is a very positive thing. The second thing is, um, you asked the question about retrofitting, and it's very clear that if we don't do retrofitting with new build, we we will never solve the the, the problem because uh, the turnover is so low, of course. So yes, there is a program for retrofitting, but the targets that have been set by the government. Uh, were just to fix the orders of magnitude, were like four hundred thousand units uh, since the beginning of the um, Hollande government, and um, you know, a hundred and some thousand, so a bit over a quarter, not even a third, has been actually uh, uh, implemented. So the the results are very very far from. Uh, you know the actual targets, and it's a big problem. It's 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 probably the biggest issue, you know, and it's not very attractive, uh, an attractive issue. You know, uh, rock wool or uh, you know insulation material is not really very sexy, and uh, the you know it's it's even much more. Which is, by the way, it's true also for countries like Germany. You know, it's mm-hmm. more attractive to have a solar solar collector on the roof mm-hmm. than than insulation material under the roof. And I always say, you know, as long as you lo- lose more uh, more energy through the roof than you produce on the roof, something is really, really wrong. And there's no legislation for this in France. I, you know, I believe in Denmark, where I was born and raised, uh, there's uh, building codes and so forth that require certain levels of insulation and so forth. Uh, so that doesn't exist. Yes, there is, and there is now uh, something like a building passports uh, that are that are introduced, etc. But you know, in the end, it's it depends on how things are implemented. Right. It's not enough to put out standards. Right. Uh, you know, I've I've seen this uh, myself with very very simple examples. I try to audit, to organize audits of you know our own home and several neighboring homes, and negotiate with an auditor. You know, saying here we are several several homes, etc. And I had like. Uh, four auditors come, and I ended up, you know, being uh, exhausted by these guys, and, and I decided to train the last one. <laughs> you know, so the, the 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 competence level was so bad that you know you better you do it better yourself. 
Wow. You know, if you have a little idea on this. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to have standards. It's how it's implemented is key. Right. Right. And and one of the first things is auditors. You know, they have to, people have to come in and tell you where where is the energy going? Where do you lose it and for how much money you can have a big impact and what you uh, on what you need to be doing, you know? And are people willing to um, to implement some of these retrofitting measures and energy saving measures uh, in general, or is it as it sometimes is here in the states, uh, simply just you know it's not going to pay to have anything done because it's so expensive compared to the savings you might obtain? Uh, what is that like in France? I think the the um There is quite a willingness to um, to invest money into it, and they, you know, uh, credit levels are so low now that even if you if there wasn't any subsidies, and there are subsidies for this kind of work, uh, and there is energy efficiency uh, grants, there is energy efficiency tax um, um, uh, rebates, uh, etc. There is various tools, you know, that that you can use. But the key question is still how do you get it organized? You need you need the entire chain of uh, you know of uh, actors that need to work. You know, I'm I'm advising the the sole metropolitan government together with a group of people um, of experts, including a few American people from L- Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, from Rocky Mountain Institute, Amory Lovins, you might have heard of um, some some very high profile people, and. One of the examples is that I looked at is, is lighting, and they have very, very ambitious uh, LED lighting program for public buildings. That's excellent. Sounds great. The problem is there's nothing on daylighting, nothing on natural light. Now, why is that so important? You you need to go into a building and find out what is the potential of what you can do. And the first thing you do is you look what you can do passively before you look into an active systems. So the first thing you would do is you you would look at what can you do with daylight. That's for free. And it's not only for free. It actually makes feel, people feel better. Uh, pupils and students work better at schools and in, in universities. Very well studied subject. By, by the way, mainly in the US. Very big studies have been done. Um, Walmart or Boeing in the US have done daylighting programs where they showed that productivity increases by 15%. Absenteeism uh, goes down by 15%. So there is a lot of reasons why you should do that. It, it, you know, and, and on top of all of this, this you, you, you save a lot of energy. Uh, you know, and payback times are, you know, basically, if you take into account all the other economic fa- factors, payback times are a few months mm-hmm. for very expensive retrofitting. Mm-hmm. A few months payback time. But you need to start on the right end, which is the passive end. To give that same example, to to put it on heat, if you go to a home, you will not start by replacing the boiler of the heating system and then insulate the home. That doesn't make any sense. Because the, your boiler will be two times too big, if you have, you know, if you do your job with insulation after. Mm-hmm. So you look into that in in an intelligent manner, but it has to be done. It's true. It's not that easy. You need well-trained people to do these audits, audits and advise people. I told the mayor of Seoul, I want a, a, a lighting advisor in every single store where you can buy a light bulb. Because people need to understand that the beauty about new lighting systems 
is that you can change the system, not the light bulb. Right. But it's rethink. It's complete rethink. Yeah, that's the challenge in some in some cases. Thanks for bringing up those points. Uh, moving on to something uh, a little bit different or moving back to the nuclear uh, uh, financial and legal liability that uh, we talked a little bit about earlier. Uh, and you'd mentioned accidents too. Who um, in France is financially liable if an accident uh, should occur? And in your opinion, is there sufficient insurance or other financial coverage? No, I mean, it's it's very clear that, I mean, France had for a long time, it, it still might uh, um, be still the lowest or one of the lowest insurance levels um, in the world, actually, uh, when it comes to nuclear insurance. Now, there are some um, uh, international conventions where those insurance levels are negotiated and and France has to upgrade its its levels. But even countries that have uh, levels, uh, you know, like like Germany or so of 2.5 billion. I mean, <laughs> 2.5 billion. Excuse me. Uh, when you look at real costs for major nuclear accidents, there is no real figure. Of course, we don't really know what an accident like Chernobyl will have cost in the end, because one of the big questions is what? How do you calculate the value of human health? How do you calculate the value of uh, environmental destruction or, uh, you know, uh, entry prohibition, um, wasted land? How how do you value that? Very difficult, very very problematic. But what we do know is that the the, the orders of magnitude are several hundred billion euros, uh, at the least, or dollars, or what whatever currency you want mm -hmm. to take. So we're talking huge levels of cost. Now, any kind of uh, person that runs, a, you know, a, a, a garage or any shop where an accident can happen or so has to ensure that at levels of the damage it can do, uh, except for the nuclear industry. Uh, the nuclear industry has never insured, was never forced to insure on levels of the damage that they actually can trigger. Uh, and it's it's one of the huge advantages that uh, uh, you know that exist for that the, the indirect subsidies, which of course are not calculated anywhere. But if you if you uh, run a wind turbine, you know one of those giant wind turbines, you be sure that you better be insured uh, if somebody falls off one of those towers and get kill, gets killed, you know. Uh, but that's about you know most of the accidents that can happen there uh, i mean it's 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 in, uh, absolutely of no comparison of what can happen uh, by a, um, a large scale release of radioactivity into the environment so in france uh, the nuclear operators themselves are carrying uh, that insurance liability or is it in part uh, subsidized by the government too in other words uh, i presume the french government if these operators aren't insured enough would uh, step in and and foot some of the bill or well that's the logic all over the world i mean it's basically the logic is that that uh, you know you, you create a limit uh, where up to when uh, what level the the operators are um, responsible I see. and that that level is is anywhere between 100 million and and uh, and 2.5 billion, which is ridiculous to reality. So de facto, the costs are collectivized. So you're saying that then uh, the power that 
is perceivably cheap from nuclear power is not so even uh, cheap after all if they have to internalize the, the potentially true costs or the true cost of insurance. Oh, oh it's very clear. And yeah. there, there are some studies that have been uh, that have been made, uh, which uh, basically show that the, the the price level would be two orders of magnitude higher if you mm-hmm. if you had to uh, um, appropriately insure. It's it's by the way, it's not impossible. People think there was a very interesting debate, and I discussed this in detail in some detail with an insurance expert uh, after after nine eleven. You know when nine eleven happened. Uh, obviously, the the nuclear industry guys wondered, and not only them. I mean, a lot of people wondered. Well, what what if that had happened to a nuclear power plant? And and you know that there was some some suspicion that one of these planes was actually on the road to Three Mile Island. Mm-hmm. So um, the uh, it's a it's a fair question. Uh, so some comments were basically, oh, uh, the, there's no insurer that, that would ever insure a nuclear power plant. That's not true. It's absolutely not true. The problem was a different one. The problem was that the insurers immediately said, sure, we in- insure this, but then it means we want to have do our own assessment of the risk, which means they wanted entry, complete entry to the plants, to the facilities, to do their own diagnosis. Mm which was a no-go. Mm-hmm. So, but but th- those were the key reasons why, and of course, it, uh, it was costs. Nobody ever wanted to, to, to insure a nuclear power plant against a terrorist attack. Right. And in that vein, too, uh, some sort of quasi or potentially entirely hidden costs could be the cost of uh, actually bringing some of these lawsuits that I imagine may come about if there uh, were some terrible disaster um, so who would bear the uh, the cost of doing that, and who who ultimately would be legally liable for any big disaster? Would that be the operators, or would it in the end be the French government? No, in the first in the first end, it's the uh, it's the operator, but up to a certain level, which is you know not comparable to reality. So in the end, it's the government. Right, and what a, the, there sorry. are some there are some very complex legal questions about. Transborder damage. Yes, and it's one of the reasons why uh, there are so many talks uh, about border uh, reactors. And you know, a lot of reactors are on rivers, and rivers often historically uh, are along borders. So there are a lot of uh, nuclear facilities that are actually very close to borders. I mean, look at the, the, the one that's become uh, relatively well-known, which is Fessenheim in France, which is, mm-hmm. which is right, right at the, the German border. Uh, now, what does that mean in terms of uh, civil responsibility for operating these things? What does it mean in terms of environmental impact assessment? What does it mean in, in terms of, uh, you know, overall um, co-decision rights? And it's complex because there there is a European legislation on environmental impact assessment. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, there 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 are regulations in order for transborder information, etc. But a lot of it is difficult to interpret, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is you see this immediately when there is an incident, and you know, a, a neighboring government feels that they should have been informed. Uh, earlier, or you know, they should be informed differently, or they should have been, um, you know, uh, 
consulted uh, before uh, upgrading or non-upgrading was decided, etc., etc., etc. It's it's very complex from a legal mm-hmm. point of view. But mm-hmm. it's not to say that there is no legal basis. Right. There is. It's just like you said. It's really complex. What about uh, representation? Even getting uh, potential lawyerly assistance in this regard is that something that uh, would be available to a broad segment of the population? Or you mentioned people in energy poverty too. So uh, people in France that don't have that many resources would they be worse represented? Uh, how would that work in France? Do you think? Well, it depends on who would run uh, court cases. I mean, a lot of times uh, the you know we have a if if you're I know that you're you're particularly interested in in legal issues. I I can advise you to look at some of the cases that are ongoing right now. Uh, one is fascinating case, which is a mediation case. Uh, the the first uh, so-called EPR. Uh, which uh, is being uh, uh, called the European Pressurized Water Reactor or the uh, evolutionary, in the US it was branded as the evolutionary pressurized water reactor. The first one was built or is in, under construction still in in Finland at uh, Olkiluoto. And the interesting uh, thing there, it's, it's the French government-owned company, Arriva, that is the builder under a under a turnkey contract with a consortium um, uh, with a Finnish consortium with 60 partners can you imagine that's a lot uh, so uh, there since the reactor should have been uh, in operation in 2009 that's a few years ago started building in 2005 and is currently Uh, scheduled to start operating in 2018. So at best, nine years late, you can imagine that this is a huge economic issue mm-hmm. because the losses are on various areas. Uh, the first one is obviously that you know you thought you have electricity from a certain source, source which you don't. So you have to purchase electricity from another source. Secondly, it should be carbon-free electricity and the the uh, Kyoto plan of Finland actually included an operating reactor by 2009 which they didn't have so they had to purchase not only electricity but carbon free or or certificates in another way i mean they had to to deal with the the engagements of the the country and obviously you have uh, you know a lot of um, delays in financing you have delays in workforce management etc etc it's a huge um, uh, range of issues so um, the operator the client filed a, a court case against um, Arriva but Arriva says multi-billion you know we're talking about really large court cases right uh, uh, But Arriva says that's all wrong. Uh, we're only late because uh, the regulator uh, doesn't do its job in the time, etc., etc. So they find a, c- a counter case. So this is now being mediated uh, on a, in, on a European level. Hmm. <clears throat> this this a very interesting case. The second case is that you you might have heard about Hinkley Point C, which is uh, again two EPRs that that EDF is promoting, 
it should be built. The nuclear island should be built by Arriva as well. Uh, and uh, the Austrian government has actually fight, filed a court case uh, against um, this project because they say it's illegal state aid. The agreement that has been reached on a so-called contract for difference, which is basically a feed-in tariff for mm -hmm. nuclear power. Mm -hmm. But the level is so high that it's currently about the triple, a guaranteed on 35 years, guaranteed feed-in tariff for 35 years, doesn't exist for any renewables, huh. uh, such long time periods. Right. Uh, and the level is so high that it's currently about three times the bulk price in the market. So, you know, the Austrian government says, and by the way, uh, some uh, uh, renewable energy companies, um, uh, so it's an international court case now, hmm. fi filed against the UK for illegal state aid, because all these sums up to uh, a subsidy, of course. Right. And at the same time, it seems like uh, the, the true risks would be, um, of course, the medical disasters that could happen. Uh, but that um, seems like that sometimes gets forgotten about a little bit, even though we have seen some bad accidents uh, recently. Um, so it seems to me that uh, that it might be a good idea for France and other countries to maybe not, uh, after what you're saying today, focus so much on on uh, nuclear and traditional sources of energy, but rather uh, some of the more renewable ones. You earlier on mentioned that wind and solar in France is uh, not yet that uh, popular or that predominant. I think you mentioned somewhere around 1%. So here towards the end of the program, what do you see as the future for, uh, for these kinds of uh, energy sources? Do you think that they might be increased in France in the near or longer future? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt. It's it's not it's actually it's not a question anymore. The question is only a matter of speed. Uh, and if you see, um, I, f I find it fascinating what is happening in the U.S., uh, what is happening in China, uh, where you get acceleration and acceleration uh, that is stunning. Uh, one of the problems is that a lot of the the for example the solar power. In the, in the U.S., as in other countries, it's not accounted for because it doesn't go through any meter. We have a cabin in Canada we've had for some uh, 26 years, 27 years. Mm -hmm. And we've done solar power there from day one. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, it's an island uh, system, so it's off-grid. So nobody right. ever checked how many kilowatt hours we've, we've produced there. Right. But now, uh, in the U.S., it's a very, very large development, which is off-grid, uh, you know, uh, in, in that area. People that install batteries, for example, which will come massively. Uh, I mean, what Elon Musk is, is preparing with others is, uh, you, you know, a whole entirely new strategy, which, uh, where the basics are that it will look more and more like the Internet. So we have a system that is horizontally integrated, where the flow is, is multi-flow. It's not producers and consumers anymore. We speak about prosumers, right? Yeah. It's because people produce and consume at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So a system which has centralized large-scale power plants like nuclear, also coal, um, it's, it's like dinosaurs in a flower garden. It's just the wrong, it's the wrong size 
and it's from a, the wrong age. It's, it's not appropriate anymore. And it, it's, that's one of the key reasons. Nuclear power is not only too expensive, it's too big and it's too slow. And speed is a key, is a key factor in this whole business. Right. Because when you build a nuclear power plant, you see, Russia is one of the largest promoters. But I always say, well, what, what the countries say they want to do, I'm not very interested in. I'm interested in what they actually did. And if, you know, let's take Russia, which has been, you know, basically traveling the planet, proposing nuclear power plants everywhere and saying they have contracts everywhere or agreements. Now, in, in, the, in their own country, over the past 10 years, they have brought online only four reactors. Four. You know what the average uh, construction time was? I don't. About 30 years. 30. 3 0. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's, that's sort of an example which, where people will say, oh, yes, let's do a nuclear power plant? You know, the Russian industry has shown how it works. Right. I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> ju it's just not true. So you're thinking these things naturally are becoming behind the curve and eventually uh, technologies that are going to die out naturally, if nothing else? Well, I, you know, it's the, the United States did not decide on a nuclear phase-out. It's an organic phase-out. Interesting. Uh, you know, and the, the thing is, this is, will only be accelerated. And if you, have, if you look at examples like Kiwani or now Fitzpatrick or so, power plants that, that have actually operating licenses for another 20 years, they're shut down. Why are they shut down? Well, because the production costs are higher than the market price. So you see the market having a, a big say in this as well. That's interesting. Huge say in, in, in there. And the interesting thing is that it is, it is the, the combination of uh, the stagnating or decreasing uh, power consumption, like in the U.S. It's, a, it's the same thing. Power consumption doesn't increase anymore in the U.S. And it's not an issue of economic crisis. I mean, the Nasdaq is back to the level it was in, in 2008, or before the economic crisis. I mean, the, the economic activity is pretty much back. So you, you see the same thing in, in other uh, in, in industrialized countries, and you see it definitely in, in countries like China. So the, where you have, you have in China, of course, still an increase of electricity consumption, but it has slowed dramatically below of what was expected. It's one of the reasons why coal-fired power plants, you know, some of these uh, projects don't have customers anymore. So for large nuclear plants, the market is just breaking away because the consumption is not there. Plus, and that's the second level, uh, renewables are now at a price level you know, we, we've seen now in, in 2015 price levels in the U.S. below five cents a kilowatt hour from solar power. Below five cents. In the same market segment, shale gas, elect, uh, you know, electricity, is about seven cents. Nuclear is about 13. So, <laughs> I mean, it, I'm not saying you can build, uh, you can have this kind of price tomorrow morning everywhere. But that's the trend, very clearly. 
low consumption, high efficiency, and ferocious competitors on the renewable power end. Great. That sounds actually very interesting and sort of an interesting organic process in and of itself. Um, I think we're just about out of time here uh, today, Michael, but uh, thank you so much for giving us some more thought of a thought and uh, thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. 